Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, History of Byzantium listeners. I'm Fry, And I'm Bree from Pontifax a papal history podcast where we're ranking the popes from Peter to Francis. In each episode, we go through the life and history of a single pope and contextualize their role in the wider history of the period. We talk theology, infallibility, heresy, sex, simony, murder, and more. And then we rate them all. We judge on the success of their papacy, scandal, secular impact, and what their face looks like. In the end, our best popes will battle it out to be the popiest pope who ever poped, and maybe even take the keys of the pearly gates away from St. Peter. So you should join us. And right now, we're deep in the Byzantine papacy, so there's never been a better time to listen to Pontifax. You can find Pontifax at pontifax.podbean.com and all major podcatching services. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 204, Komnenian Reforms. We've been following Alexius around for the past 15 years, and in that time we've focused almost exclusively on military campaigns and foreign affairs. Today we need to turn our attention to Constantinople and domestic matters. The empire was in the midst of a deep crisis when Alexius took power, and though things are still pretty bad on many fronts, at least we've been able to follow one Vasilevs for the past decade, something we haven't been able to do since the days of Constantine Monomachos. So something must have been going right back home to allow for this stability at the top. If we wind our minds back to 1081, the empire was on the verge of bankruptcy. The loss of so much of the East meant that tax receipts had been slashed, and the gold coins that were coming in were so debased that the government were receiving only a fraction of what they were owed. The expense of funding an Eastern army were largely gone, but Western troops were needed more than ever. The ten years that followed were a desperate struggle to wring enough cash out of the population to maintain what was left of the empire. A connected problem was the need to stop new usurpers from cropping up. 
Not only were they a threat to the Komnenos clan, but they were likely to drain even more precious tax revenue away from the state. To tackle these intertwined problems, the Komnenoi made major reforms to how the government managed its elites. We talked about this a little back in episode 198. Alexius's brother-in-law, Nicephorus Melissinus, was on the other side of the Bosphorus the day that Komnenos seized the throne. Melissinus had also declared himself emperor, and so once Alexius was victorious, everyone stood around waiting for the tragic news that Nicephorus had met with a nasty accident, or had somehow managed to poke his own eyes out. Instead, Melissinos was welcomed into the palace, given the title of Caesar, and assigned lands around Thessalonica to support him. Someone in the Komnenos family was thinking about the big picture. The empire was in disarray, and only a united front was going to keep things together. It may well have been Alexius's mother, Anna Thalassini, who was behind the decision to unite, rather than divide, the leading families of Byzantium. Anna had spent the previous decade carefully arranging marriages to link her brood to every important family in the capital. This included connections to every recent imperial family, Ducas, Theogenes, and Votaniates, and would eventually include the Neely men, Melissinos, Sinadinos, Vurienios. Why unpick such a carefully woven arrangement when one could embrace it? The coalition that brought Alexius to power was not shunned, but elevated. Again, we talked about this back in episode 198. Alexius's brothers were all given new imperial titles, placing them alongside Melissinos as the senior men of the state. And below them, the leading army commands were entrusted to other members of the elite who had blood connections to the emperor men like George Paleologos and Gregory Pacorianos. By allowing these men a taste of imperial dignity and making the business of government a sort of family concern, the Komnenoi were aiming to neutralise them as potential usurpers. Alexius and his family were fighting the very forces that we discussed in episode 200. We talked then about how the Byzantine court system, the awarding of huge cash salaries to officials, was both a source of stability in general and a source of instability at the very top. For those lower down the totem pole, the system ensured loyalty and good behaviour since the rewards were so great. But at the very tippy-top, where being in made you super-rich and being out could ruin you, a culture of usurpation was inadvertently encouraged. Now, all the most highly placed men were forged into one ruling family, where they could all share in the decision-making and the glory. This government by kin worked well for just over a decade. It got the Komnenoi through the immediate crisis and helped them see off the Normans and the Pechenegs. But it clearly didn't end talk of usurpation as we saw with the attempted coup by Nicephorus Theogenes, which we'll talk about later. In addition to creating new court titles, the Komnenoi reformed the whole honours system, 
They abolished large numbers of non-essential titles and cut the salaries of those they kept. Under the old system, many esteemed positions required no actual state service. Their function was largely to keep important families on the payroll. While at the other end of the food chain, many smaller roles had been created in order to please ambitious guildsmen and merchants. This was a big gripe against Constantine Monomachos and other palace-based 11th century emperors. They were accused of handing out honours in order to buy support from the urban mob. All these titles were now gone. What was left were the positions that had to be filled. Provincial governors, army commanders, palace bureaucrats. Everyone took a pay cut, including those at the very top. This was an unpopular decision, as you can imagine. It probably helped that Votaniates had already failed to meet the demands of his payroll before he was overthrown. It can't then have been a shock to anyone when the Komnenoi began economising. Naturally, though, it left them open to criticism. The reduction in salaries for the top jobs created a slightly different problem. The huge bags of cash that army commanders were usually given were huge for a reason. From his stipend, Astratikos was expected to pay his own staff, including loyal retainers, their mounts and equipment. With the empire's army so depleted, the entourages of these senior men were more crucial than ever. They would soon become the native core of the Roman army, they carried with them the expertise of previous generations and would be expected to instruct the mass of mercenaries serving under them. So Alexius had to ensure that his senior generals all had large estates of their own, large enough to fund a unit of his army. Now you might think, no problem, how else did these senior men become so senior except by being rich landowners? But here comes the catch. Most of the new coalition were Anatolian landowners. The Dukai and the Komnenoi were former Anatolian army officers. Their takeover of the government was a reaction to inactive Constantinople-based regimes. Ironically, by virtue of the Turkish takeover, they had now become largely landless residents of the capital themselves. So this is why Alexius handed over lands in Thessalonica to Nicephorus Melissinus. If you are going to be part of the new elite, then you're going to need everything that goes with that. A big farmhouse, the peasants to work your land, fields to run horses around, and revenues to keep your duds looking spiffy. The lands he handed over to Melissinos were imperially owned. I may have implied he handed over the whole city's tax revenue back in episode 198. That was not the case. These were estates owned by the crown whose revenues would no longer go straight to the treasury, but instead straight to Melisinos. This also had the handy byproduct of cutting the debased coinage out of the exchange. The new lands could produce food and horses and clothes directly for their new masters, instead of paying it to the exchequer in order to turn it into a cash salary. All of Alexius's brothers were given new estates, as was Pacorianos. 
The lands were not theirs to do as they pleased with. They were still imperial land being temporarily granted to their care. Much of the land served up to them was confiscated, either from political enemies or from expansionist monasteries who'd used the postmanzikert chaos to shield their new plots from the taxman. These decisions were a practical response to a desperate situation. The Komnenoi were empowering a new elite in order to maintain control of the state and fund their army by other means while cash was in short supply. Unfortunately, the optics of these policies did not seem so practical, particularly to the middle classes, as it were, the bureaucrats of the administration, the merchants of the capital, and lower-level army officers. To them it seemed that if you were related to the emperor, you would get massive handouts and live in palatial splendor, while everyone else was being asked to take a pay cut. They weren't wrong, but they may have slightly missed the point. Komnenian public relations were further damaged by the sheer intensity of their efforts to collect more tax. As you know, this was absolutely necessary in the face of constant warfare, but it was a miserable time for most Romans. The government needed to guarantee that revenue would come in, so they turned to tax farmers. These men and their teams would then attempt to extract as much as possible from the population, a situation that was exacerbated by the empire's coinage varying so wildly in quality. The sources we have complaining about this generally come from the wealthy, although the governor of Cyprus paints a picture of widespread discontent at what was going on. Meanwhile, bishops and monks who wrote letters or made records show that tax collectors were ignoring exemptions that they'd won from previous imperial regimes, or in some cases changing the methods they used to measure land in order to increase their take. The government increasingly absorbed coins of finer quality while paying salaries in the most debased currency. They were planning for the future, and a reform of the debased Nomismata was on its way, but this did nothing to alleviate the sense of injustice. I've talked a lot so far about the Komninoi collectively, rather than Alexius alone, for obvious reasons. Alexius was out on campaign almost every year, so most of the administrative detail must have been the work of his mother Anna and his brother Isaac. And it does seem to have been Anna who really ran the show. Her name is attached to various imperial edicts, and by the time of the Crusades, we even find a document where Alexius expresses frustration at the level of influence his mother has over affairs at the capital. She held court at the Vlachernai Palace by the land walls. This may have enabled her to control the bureaucracy better, since she was forcing them away from their home turf, and it also allowed her to establish a monastic rigour to palace affairs, as something which the regime was keen to publicise. Isaac, meanwhile, seems to have taken charge of justice and security. He dealt with trials and legal problems, 
while also overseeing religious conformity and the punishment of those caught up in the various coup attempts. And this is where the trial of John Italos comes in, as we discussed in episode 199. The Komninoi presented themselves as deeply pious and orthodox. Naturally, in these hard times, many people thought about repentance and whether all of this was God's punishment. The imperial regime had to appear to be doing God's work in order to justify their policies. So it was that Italos's pagan sympathies were paraded before the masses to show the imperial regime defending orthodoxy. I'm sure that the Komninoi were deeply religious and took this seriously, but it had undeniable political benefits. Over the next few years, several more heresy trials were held, and it's hard not to conclude that they were, in part, attempts to control public opinion. The men in question tended to be ascetic monks with popular followings at the capital. Doubtless, men like these were critical of the government, but Anna is our only source, and she presents them as preaching heretical lines of thinking. She tells us that Alexius debated with them, but unable to change their ways, had to resort to trial and exile. By 1091, discontent was becoming serious. Since man's occurred, a steady stream of refugees had been arriving at the capital. The poor amongst them lined the streets, begging and brawling. The news from Anatolia was awful, and there was no end in sight to the brutal tax regime. In an astonishing sermon, John the Patriarch of Antioch verbalized the wider discontent in front of the emperor and his family. Though he professed personal loyalty to Alexius, John said the following things. That Alexius's seizure of the throne was illegitimate, that Alexius's defeats were his own fault, that the empire was being punished for its sins, as was the imperial family, that taxes were too harsh, that the seizure of church property was a disgrace. He even mentioned the recent defeat at Dristra and Alexius's foolishness specifically. The thrust of the speech, though, was that Alexius's wider family were the big problem. Your relatives, O Emperor, have become the greatest pest upon the Empire and upon all of us. How can they live in opulent palaces, he asked, when the poor are dying in the streets? Such open criticism of a sitting Emperor is almost unprecedented. So much so that some scholars assume Alexius okayed the speech in advance, they point to the fact that Alexius could use the sermon as a stick to beat his relatives with, and the fact that John remained in the emperor's favour and eventually did take up his position in Antioch. Whatever the truth behind the sermon, what followed from the government were a series of initiatives aimed at easing the people's burdens, and what followed from the elite was a series of attempts to overthrow Alexius. We'll start with the government's policies. Now, these had been in the works for some time, but they were fully initiated around this time. One was a major reform of the empire's coinage, with the first issues handed out to officials in 1092. The existing system of coins had been established back in the 8th century and consisted of a gold nomisma, a silver 
Miliaration, and the Copper Folis. Alexius now handed out a variety of specie. The new highest value coin was called a Nomisma Hyperperon. It was the same weight as the old Nomisma, but only twenty and a half carats rather than the old standard twenty-four. The rest of the coin was made up of silver. The next coin was known as an Aspron Traci Nomisma, and was also a gold-silver alloy, but worth only one-third of the Hyperperon. This was clever work from the Empire's mints. They had essentially taken two sets of old Nomisma, one slightly debased, the other heavily debased, and forged them into two new forms of currency. Next, you had a Bilon Traci, Bilon being an alloy of silver and copper. This was worth about 1 48th of a Hyperperon. And then finally, there was the Copper Tetarteron, and you'd need about 864 of them to match the Hyperperon. I've put up pictures at the website. Alexius has won high praise for this coin reform, both for the clever use of the debased coinage, but also the creation of an extra denomination, which made day-to-day transactions, as well as the payment of tax, much easier. Historian Michael Hendy says it was the most impressive reform of the empire's coinage since Diocletian's. For people out in the provinces, having coins with clearly delineated values and standard weights was vital. But chaos continued to reign when it came to tax collection because so many of the old coins were still in circulation. It wasn't until 1106 that Alexius's officials got round to reforming the entire tax system based on the new coinage. And even then, it probably took until 1109 for the system to begin functioning normally. The result of all this was a big increase in tax revenue for the government. They could now insist that landowners pay their taxes in the correct amounts, and they revoked exemptions for all but the most highly connected monasteries. The other major reform the government undertook concerned social care at the capital. The Orphanotrophaeon, the largest imperial orphanage, was moved to a new site on the capital's Acropolis. Existing buildings were turned into houses for the aged with thousands of members of staff. A grammar school was opened to teach poor and orphan children, and four different monastic houses were situated here, along with a church to tend to those in need. The new site served multiple purposes. Of course it was a good in and of itself, but it also helped showcase the Komnenian regime at its most philanthropic. It also reassured the wealthy by removing many beggars from the streets. Practically, the government were also making sure that church land, which couldn't easily be claimed for the state, was put to work. The new complex was very expensive to maintain, and so dozens of ecclesiastical estates were forced to redirect their revenue towards the new project. In a time of crisis, the government often clashed with the church over the vast wealth of the latter. Here, the Komninoi had found a way of making sure that the church's privileges were used to support their efforts to restore order. As you know, 
Despite these efforts, several attempts were made to kill or overthrow Alexius. We think of Alexius Komnenos as a major figure who ruled for a long time, but when he took power, he was just another usurper. And even ten years into his reign, several men in his new coalition could think of themselves as likely candidates to replace him. After all, they were fighting every summer. There was a good chance that Alexius might die in battle. Things changed, though, with the distribution of the new coinage in 1092. In order to gain maximum publicity from the new issues, they were timed to coincide with an important event, the coronation of Alexius's young son John as emperor. John was five years old at this point, and previous emperors had crowned even younger heirs. But scholars speculate that Alexius had been afraid to upset the existing dynastic arrangements. Only with his final victory over the Pechenegs at Lavunium did he feel confident enough to crown his son. What were those existing arrangements? Well, as you may recall, Constantine Ducas, the now 20-year-old son of Michael Ducas, was still technically an emperor. He was the son of the former Empress Maria, who had been instrumental in Alexius's coup succeeding. By crowning his own son, Alexius was essentially casting Constantine out of the succession. And it wasn't just Ducas who was upset. Nicephorus Theogenes, the born-in-the-purple son of Romanus, also saw his dreams dashed. And even Isaac's son, John, had held hopes of replacing his uncle one day. And as you may remember, in our last episode, conspiracies were uncovered, attached to all three men. John Komnenos had been given the key post of governor of Dyrrhachium when rumours swirled that he was talking revolution. Isaac stepped in to restore order, and Alexius let it slide, but it should have been a warning. The next year, Nicephorus Theogenes was discovered with a dagger in his clothes and had to be tortured to reveal who his co-conspirators were. One of the first names he mentioned was the former Empress Maria, who had hoped to restore her son to the position of heir presumptive. Much to Alexius's discomfort, Theogenes named a series of prominent men as well, including the emperor's brother, Adrianos. Over the next few years, prosopography reveals that Alexius stripped many of these men and their families of imperial favour. Though he was not directly implicated, the Caesar Nicephorus Melissinos was eased out soon after this, and even staunch loyalists like George Paleologos were no longer given key commands once the Crusades had crossed Anatolia. The new men he promoted were those who owed their position entirely to Alexius's favour. Some of them were non-Romans, mercenary commanders who had impressed in imperial service and had no ties to the elite. Despite trying to make the empire his family business, Alexius clearly felt deeply let down by his kin. As for Constantine Ducas, still emperor by acclamation, he died about a year after Theogenes's coup. Constantine, like his father, was dismissed by historians as inactive and irrelevant, 
and no one says there was anything suspicious about his demise. But it was certainly convenient. He would have remained a potential rallying point for discontent, but now, like the rest of his generation, he was swept aside. This neatly broke his engagement to a young Anna Komnini, who was free instead to marry the grandson of Nicephorus Vurienios, the commander of Adrianople, now the key recruiting ground in the whole empire. The Komninoi had ridden out the early storms they'd faced. The empire's finances were on their way to being mended. The streets were calm for now. And by keeping his friends close and his enemies closer, Alexius had just about survived and now knew who he could truly rely on as he faced up to his greatest challenge yet. Questions remain about Alexius's willingness to campaign in Anatolia. But given the defeats he'd witnessed in his formative years, it doesn't surprise me that he waited until his house was completely in order before moving against the Turks. And let's be honest, given the humiliations he'd suffered at Dyrrhachium and Tristra, there's every chance he would have been dead in a ditch if he'd tried any sooner. But before Alexius lights the fuse on the Crusades, let's just talk a little more about Alexius, the person. Often our sense of an emperor's personality is dictated by the choices they make in office. But Alexius didn't really have a choice in fighting the Normans and Pechenegs, and clearly his family were the driving force behind the administrative reforms, so what do we really know about him? You'd think that having his daughter as our main source of information would supply us with a rich picture of his personality. But that's where accusations of bias cloud our judgment. Was she really going to say anything other than positive things? On campaign, he seems brave and honest. At home, he and her mother would read the scriptures together. And as I said earlier, he supposedly debated theology with heretics. All of that may be true. It's worth saying that his mother's piety is well attested, and she was the patron to many renowned monks, whose patronage then passed to Alexius himself. Most scholars follow Anna's line that he was a religious and conservative man. The scaling back of urban honours and his constant warfare have led many to conclude that Alexius was a man in the Phocas Zimiskis Korkuas mould. But as far as I know, he grew up at the capital, not in the provinces, and those policies were more or less forced upon him. One clear point of difference with past rulers, though, is that he and Irene had nine children, which, as Leonora Neville points out, means he took his marriage much more seriously than many an emperor of the past. Anna is a bit more forthcoming on physical descriptions. Uh, we talked once before that she conceded he was not very tall, but praised his broad shoulders, radiant eyes, and claimed he was an eloquent speaker. In another passage, though, she reveals that he had a lisp when pronouncing his R's. In Battle with the Normans, she also describes a scene where his helmet is knocked off and he's wounded, and she says that blood matted his curly red hair, obscuring his vision. Certainly by now, 
Alexius was a battle-hardened warrior. When he came to power, he was in his mid-twenties, and youthful exuberance may explain some of his early defeats. By the time the Crusaders arrive, he will be 39 years old, and far more experienced in the ways of the world. The few other contemporaries who leave comments about him remember Alexius as a disciplined and unpretentious figure, more at home in an army camp than in palace ceremonial. He was clearly a very committed man, determined to personally lead the army into every assignment. He showed considerable bravery and tenacity in his first 15 years on the throne, if a little naivety as well. Although you can see why the coup of 1094 was such a shock to him, some of the men planning his downfall had spent their entire adult lives in his company. The leading men of the empire were ever-present on campaign during the 1080s, and after all they'd been through, Alexius expected them to back him to the hilt. Historian Peter Frankopan thinks it's telling that one of the few pieces of Komnenian art that we know of was a palace mural showing Alexius as God's vice-regent during the Last Judgment. Certainly, these were grim times for Byzantium when the end of the world might have seemed nigh to many. That deeply serious religious faith is, of course, a subject we are going to have to become better acquainted with as we enter the next chapter of our story. The Crusades will see Alexius centre stage in the palace rather than the battlefield, and with far more complicated choices to make, which should give us a deeper sense of who he was. That's all for now. For those interested, I've put up a post at thehistoryofbyzantium.com about how the coronavirus might affect the podcast, but so far I've been able to access the resources I need, and so long as that continues, the podcast will too. There is always the potential for disruption, though, so while you're waiting for your next fix, why not check out Pontifacts, a podcast all about the papacy. I met Bree and Fry when I was in Boston, and they were fun and charming, and so is their show. For those of you who've asked about what happened back in Rome when we were off in Constantinople, this is a good chance to catch up. Visit pontifacts.podbean.com or look for Pontifacts wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.